The rest of you could open up to 1 Thessalonians. That's where we're at this morning, and there's a little handout there for you. So yesterday, Pastor Angel, the one that leads our third service, Spanish service, his daughter got married. And this coming weekend, we have one Miss Ruth Palm who's getting married to Jameson. So some of you were there at our church camp out where they got engaged. So that's, that's a great advertisement for this year's church camp out. You really never know what's going to happen. We've had some fun announcements go on at that camp out. You know, a wedding is one of those moments where we and me kind of collide, right? You have two me's that walk up and you walk away as a, as a we. And I was thinking about this passage and just in a lot of areas of life, the whole idea that me matters, the individual, and we matters, sort of the collective togetherness. This passage, one of the things, one of the ways you could break up the book is to look at it this way. In chapters one through three, Paul is writing to the collective church. He's talking to the we, and he's saying that collectively you matter. And then really next week, we shift into chapter 4, and 4 and 5 all go down into the individual. Chapters 1 through 3, we give thanks for you all. You became, plural, an example to other churches. Your lives, plural, are changing. You, plural, had become so dear to us. And then in chapters 4 and 5, He's really writing about how to have God-pleasing lives, not collectively, but individually. Your part matters. He says, each one of you should know how to control your own body. That's the individual. Encourage and build one another up. The we and the me both matter. You know, the people that you take the journey with determine your destination. My challenge to you is run with people who are pursuing God. If you are around other people who are heading in the wrong direction, guess where you'll end up? You'll end up in the wrong place. Just an example of how who you run with, whether that be in marriage, whether that be in church, it really, really matters. So as we wrap up this sort of we section, he wraps it up in prayer. First Thessalonians chapter 3, we're looking at just a few verses this morning. Look with me at verse 11. Now, may our God and Father himself... And our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. When you see the word now in verse 11, now is sort of connecting this flow from what he had just been talking about. So by way of review, remember that Paul was intent on establishing this new church. He wanted to establish these new believers. Remember that what that blue rod represents? That blue rod represents discipleship, right? It's having another person who is strong in the ground that, that attaches themselves to brand new baby believers and says, this is how to grow up and strong. See the tree in the background? Discipleship and establishing new Christians is all about getting the foreground tree to look like the background tree, right? Is a, is a, is a storm gonna knock down that background tree? Probably, probably not. It's gonna take a massive storm to rip that thing down. And so Paul is establishing this young and baby church. Today we get to see specifically of what he is praying for. We've been in this series called Now and Later Life. 
And sort of like the candy, there are realities that are sweet both now and in the future. The Christian life is not some future thing. Well, we're going to just grin and bear it now, and someday we'll get, we'll get our reward. In fact, the opposite is true. It's both. It's both now and later. We've been using this clock to sort of represent in place of numbers around the face of the clock. We have these 12 phrases that sort of weave all through this letter, this, this New Testament letter called 1 Thessalonians. If you struggle with ADD, if you kind of like wonder, like, where are we at again? Or you just like the cliff notes, like, just get it to me really quick. Here's what you can do each week. Each week, you can come in and find the sort of major point is the small hand. Okay, that's the hour clock. That is pointing to most of what the passage is talking about. Then there are always sort of secondary themes. So the major theme this morning is grow more and more. And you just see this woven through the whole letter. And then secondary themes are watch for Jesus' return. And we'll see that in a moment. If I had three hands on this clock, I would point to one more this morning, and you'll see it. It's right here. Pray all the time. Okay. So these 12 phrases, if you were to read 1 Thessalonians every day for a month, you would see why these 12 phrases are up there. These are 12 phrases that have benefit, that have life for us now and benefit for us in the future. By the way, there are a couple of doctrines that just sort of leap off of the page. And we're not going to dive heavy into these doctrines because this is not a passage trying to explain those doctrines, but these doctrines kind of emerge from this. One is the Trinity. The Trinity, of course, is one God in three distinct persons. Two of the persons of the Trinity are named in what I just read. The second doctrine is called eschatology. It's future things. It's the return of Christ, the second coming of Jesus. Now, end times and the Trinity. This is pretty confusing stuff, right? If you were a Christian, you come from a long line of family members who like to argue and bicker over the finer points of things they don't fully understand. Okay, That, that is church history. You go read it for yourself. God has put all this truth in the Bible... And so it's there. So we ought to be digging into it. But here's the truth of it. It's a mystery to us as well. So I hope that you will sort of dive into this. By the way, 2 Thessalonians is the sequel to 1 Thessalonians. Do you know why 2 Thessalonians was written? Because people got so psychotic about the return of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians that they started acting completely Jesus crazy. And Paul had to go back and write a second letter and say, No, keep your jobs. Keep living this life now. He's coming at some point. We don't know the hour. You are taking the things I said out of context. Stop being Jesus crazy. That's sort of a nutshell what 2 Thessalonians is about. Maybe we'll do a series called Don't Be Jesus Crazy, but that would be confusing. Bottom line is, people get Jesus crazy when you talk about end times. People get in fights. People get all kinds of just, you know, all over the map. I think both the Trinity and eschatology, things to come, are really important to study. Again, it's in the book. So, God, you've put these things in here. You've put these prophecies in here. You've put these hints about you in in here. But this morning isn't the context for it. Now, you might be brand new to this whole deal, and you're just asking this simple question. I'm just trying to figure out how prayer works. How does prayer work, and what does God want me to do? I think that we're going to touch on the deep end a little bit this morning, and I think we're going to touch on the shallow end a little bit this morning. Here's, here's in a nutshell what God wants you to do. He wants you to be more awesome, okay? That's it. That's why, that's why I called the message Be More Awesome. Before we look exactly at what Paul prayed, we're going to look at HWPP, bracelets that didn't make quite as big of a, of a splash, but how would Paul pray? 
right? So let's look for just a quick second at, at, at what's going on with this. I don't really remember many specific prayers growing up, but it was deeply impressed upon me that this was something really, really important that we did a lot and that you weren't supposed to screw around. That's, if, if you asked me in a nutshell about prayer growing up, that's what I would have, would have sort of gathered. Also, I can tell you from experience that if you tell on a sibling who didn't have their eyes closed during prayer, that is self-implicating. Okay? Do not do that. I'll just give you the, the, uh, the punchline now. Don't do that because they'll, they'll know that you had your eyes open to be able to discern that. Prayer in this letter, like so many others, is woven throughout the entire teaching. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Chapter 3. We pray most earnestly, day and night. Chapter 5. Pray without ceasing. And he closes the letter saying, brothers, pray for us. Prayer is woven through this whole letter. I want you to notice and jot down a couple of things. One is notice that they prayed together. If you go back up to chapter 3, verse 10, you see a simple little word that says this. We. We pray. We pray means there was collective, collaborative prayer going on. Don't you get to know some things with, with people when you begin to pray with others out loud? You actually get to know them in some different ways. I know that's really strange and really funky for some of you. Let me just tell you, practice practice eases that a little bit. It feels weird because you go, I know this isn't a performance for these four people around me. I have no idea why I'm even nervous praying about this. I'm just talking to God, but I don't want to pray out loud. Here's my admonition to you. With all the grace I can say, get over it. Get over it. Um, just begin to have a conversation. Begin to do it little bit at a time, little bit at a time. Part of what we challenge every community group ought to be doing regularly is just to pray out loud together. In a large setting like this, we can't go around the circle and have everyone pray. It would just take too long. So usually there's someone leading the congregation in prayer. But man, that's where midweek those community groups come in and allow for that communal prayer to happen. You know, talking... With God together in our offices here every week, we have some prayer time just with other local pastors. But when you talk with God together, it develops your friendship and your closeness and your knowledge of one another, one another differently than talking to each other about God. So our goal every Wednesday from 9 to 10 is we get together and we talk to God together openly. Instead of coming together, pastors like to get together and they talk to each other about God. You see the difference? Um, out of that time together, there's just been such a natural development of relationship and care and longing and, and, and yearning and celebrating and weeping when other churches, when other parts of our body in this valley are, are up or down. Uh, there's been a whole new ministry that's been born out of that prayer time specifically. It's called Foster the Bay. You may have heard about it. We're kind of big into that around here. Um, So some neat things happen when there's collaborative, collective prayer. Secondly, they prayed like it mattered. It says that they were constant in it. They were earnest. It seems like any time was a good time for them to pray. Prayer wasn't occasional. They prayed night and day. And prayer wasn't easy. They prayed earnestly. If you're doing anything earnestly, it's not kickback, right? Colossians 4.12. You could jot down Colossians 4.12 about this guy Epaphras. Epaphras, Paul writes, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Wouldn't that be a cool way to be known? 
Hey, there's, there's that guy Epaphras. Remember him? He wants to send his greeting. He is always struggling with all his might in his prayers for you. His prayer wasn't just a quick thing before a meal. It wasn't a quick bedtime recited prayer. He was doing this in earnest. It took effort for him. I believe that our prayers become distracted, disjointed, and downright boring when all that we're doing is building consensus around beliefs instead of building God's kingdom with our belief. You see the difference? It's not just about gathering together and kind of giving mental assent to theological truths here on Sunday. I think that's when we can just fall into repetitive things. It's when we get out and begin to live those things. Doing the Bible instead of merely studying the Bible gets you talking to God in some different ways. Amen? Yeah. Man, if you just look and study and that's all you're interested in is just gaining more information, that's like walking, watching a documentary on the History Channel, which I love, the rest of my family hates, right? I don't do anything about it. If I watch something on Gettysburg, I don't dress. I'm not the guy that dresses and goes and reenacts. I just watch it. I go, that was mildly entertaining. I learned something new, and I leave. If we treat the Bible the same way, our prayers look and feel different than doing the Bible instead of simply studying the Bible. Prayer becomes earnest and constant when you are in over your head and walking by faith. How are we supposed to walk? By sight or by faith? By faith. That means by default. We are in over our heads. That's when your prayers become constant. Doesn't any time seem like a good time to pray when you're in over your head? Yeah. You don't wait for the 3 o'clock hour. Ding! It's prayer time. No. You cry out anytime. Anytime's a good time. Man, my, my worries, my anxieties, they don't show up on a polite schedule. They show up oftentimes in the middle of the night when I should be sleeping. That's a good time to pray. Anytime's a good time to pray. I just read a short little book um, that I just wanted to, to recommend to you. A guy by the name of Donald Whitney, and you could write this down, Praying the Scriptures, Praying the Scriptures. And what, what he's trying to tackle in Praying the Scriptures is this. He kind of wrestles with this question. He says, stop praying the same old things about the same old things. You ever feel like your, your prayers are, are that way? I mean, you use the same old language about the same old things, and you're, you're talking to God on high. As you pray the Scriptures, it's, a simple, it's just a simple thing. Um, and it's not like I haven't learned this before, but it was just a great refresher to go to Scripture and just open the Bible and begin to pray what you see there. So he uses by way of example Psalm 23. What is God called in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. So God's revealed himself, says, hey, I'm a shepherd. Are there things to pray about? God, you're our shepherd, and I need your protection today. I need your protection over my kids. Thank you for being the good shepherd. Thank you that you've drawn me in and I hear your voice. You just pray about things about God being your shepherd until you run out of things to say. Then you know what you do? You read the next line. What's the next line? I shall not want. You think you could pray about that for a little bit? Right? Do you see this? You just move right on down the road. That way God becomes more than just the same things over and over that maybe you keep praying. God's revealed himself as shepherd, stronghold, avenger, lover, king, fortress, father, and we need him to be all those things. A lot of times we get stuck in the phrase, Father God this, Father God that, Father God this. He's more than that. He's certainly a father, but when you pray the scriptures, it kind of opens up the world to be able to communicate back to him ways he's revealed himself to you. Do you know that everyone prays? Everyone prays sort of. I would sort of qualify that with sort of. Um, let me ask you a question. What do stars and candles and pennies and dandelions and bones and wells and bottles and fingers and salt all have in common? They all 
are activities that we do to accompany wishing. Right? We do all these different things, and then there's a wish sort of attached to it. What's the difference between praying and wishing? I'll tell you what the similarities are. The similarities are people who pray and people who wish all have a sense, I could use some help here. I'm in a little bit over my head. I could use something extra. I don't know if I know much about wishing wells, but I'm going to throw this penny in. It doesn't cost me too much. I'm going to just make a wish just in case this thing's going to help me out. E.M. Bounds, who's written some great books on prayer, um, says this, Praying is spiritual work, and human nature does not like taxing spiritual work. That's why prayer is difficult. My mind wanders just like your mind wanders. My mind loops back on the same thing and then feels kind of guilty about looping back on the same things just like your mind does. It is taxing spiritual work and the flesh hates that. Doesn't want to go there. Isn't making a wish a lot easier? There it is. Blow out the candles. There's a star, right? We just kind of do these things. Here's what wishing is. Wishing is to want, desire, or long for something. Prayer, by contrast, is expressing those same wants, desires, and longings to someone. And once you've discovered who God is, it's more than just expressing your desires, isn't it? Aren't your prayers filled with gratitude? Do you know that we're commanded to be thankful in our prayers? That's kind of a funny thing. That means that there will be times we don't naturally come with thanks. But I know you people. Your prayers are filled with thanksgiving. I've already heard it this morning. Man, I'm so happy about what God's doing in my life. My heart's just filled with thanksgiving. So we bring our longings to him, our desires to him, but we also bring our thanksgiving, and we bring our adoration and our praise to him. That's the difference between praying and wishing. I'm in the middle of a great little book called Delighting in God by A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer says this, Who comes into your mind when you pray is paramount. Who it is that is formed in your mind is paramount. This missions team, remember it's a team of people. We prayed for you, led by Paul. This missions team prayed to someone. And they actually name him in this prayer. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, out of the mouth the heart speaks. And so what we pray for actually says a lot about our view of God. Here's, here's sort of what Paul prayed for now. Paul prayed for reunion. He wants God to direct their way, the missions team, back to them. Remember from earlier in this chapter that they'd been hindered. Satan had hindered them from coming. Uh, Paul essentially was not taking no for an answer. And as I read the Bible, it seems God encourages prayer like this. We do the same sorts of thing. Don't we pray for, or, for open doors? God, make open doors for this. God, make straight paths for this. God, I pray that you'd clear the way for this to happen. What's powerful about a few words that you can kind of pick out from this text is this. It's not just that Paul misses his friends. We can go long to see our friends selfishly, can't we? We miss them. They fill a place in our heart. They're funny to be around. They're encouraging. They're really deep. Instead, he wants to be with them for their sake, to fill up what is lacking in their faith. He knows they're a little tree. He wants to be near them to make sure that they get established. And even in his longing for reunion, it's selfless. I find that challenging. You know, this prayer appears to be answered about five years later. 
Acts 19 and 20 uh, reveal that Paul and his team got to go back through Macedonia and, and visit them. He got to reunite with his friends just like he's praying. Love has this way of finding us praying audacious things and not giving up. We pray audacious things in a persistent manner. I began to think, what if you are four years and 11 months into a prayer that God's going to answer at the five-year mark? My encouragement to you, keep praying. Keep at it. God longs for us to cling to him in prayer and not let go. For more about this, see Jesus' story about a widow who is seeking justice before a judge in Luke 18. He begins it this way. Listen. Now, he was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Hang in there with your prayer. Keep grabbing onto that. Don't let go. All right, what else does Paul pray for? What else is on Paul's heart for his church? Verse 12, that their love would grow and overflow. He asked the Lord to make their love increase. Not man. God, you make their, their love increase. It's not up to man. Rob said this well. We sang about God's love because God's love is the standard of how we are to love. You want to know how to love? You don't get to make it up. In my world, love is this. Well, that's not the world we all inhabit. God's revealed love to us. He's shown us the standard. But not only is he the standard, he's the source. So with God being the standard of love and the source, you keep your eyes Close to him. Paul wants it to grow and overflow. So full that it can't be contained. It's spilling all over the place. You ever had something just filled to the brim and you're walking really careful trying not to spill it? I mean, just imagine just pouring it to the very, very top and then walking around. I just began to let my mind kind of wander a little bit about what would it look like to have to have John Garza loving so much that it was filled to the very, the very tip top. Well, John talks to a lot of people and he bumps into people. And you know what would happen as he's doing that, that pitcher of water of love, right? It's going to do what? It's going to spill on people. In fact, it's not just going to spill on, on people he knows. It's going to spill on people he doesn't know. It's just going to spill all over the place. What if the me really matters? And what if we just said, God, I want to be overflowing in my love. Would you, would you fill me up to the very top such that it overflows? And what if the person next to you right now in church this morning is having that same prayer? Wouldn't the we begin to look just all the more beautiful as our love is just sort of spilling over onto each other? I began to think about the spilling over love of Jesus. You know, the disciples kept making rules. No children near Jesus. Remember that? Don't let the crowds touch Jesus. They thought they were the bouncers. Don't waste that expensive perfume on Jesus. You know what Jesus was telling them to do? Knock it off. Follow me, not a bunch more rules. I didn't call you to follow a ton of rules. You follow me. I'm going to actually confront a bunch of silly rules that other people make up that aren't really rules at all. Jesus was a rule breaker. You know why? Because he was the rule maker, right? So when he saw a silly little rule down here, he shattered it. He directly, you know that he healed on the Sabbath for a point, right? I mean, he did these things over and over and over to say, those are fake rules. Knock it off. You just stay close to me. 
Mike Iaconelli, who's passed away now, is a pastor that pastored in Northern California. And um, he said this. He said, most of us have spent our Christian lives learning what we can't do instead of, le- instead of celebrating what we can do in Jesus. That might be a subtle mental shift that will be a happy thing for you this week. God, would you help me not just sit here and focus and be bound by all that I can't do and instead celebrate what it is to be alive to God this morning? Can't you feel yourself on the way to being more awesome? I mean, when you think about that, you're like, yes! That's how I want to live life. We love movies. We love stories. We love testimonies that lift us to that. And we go, yes, that's how I want to live. Man, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I've been bound by all sorts of nonsense things down here. Help me break free. How about the spilling over love of those who were even near Jesus? Jesus is with his disciples. He's talking about this woman who walks in and gives her offering at the church. Remember, it's a tiny, tiny amount. I thought about the spilling over love of this woman who came and gave this tiny amount um, to her church. She lived in a shame and honor culture. In a shame and honor culture, that would be dishonorable to do. In fact, there were probably whispers that she would have had to overcome to come and bring this small offering. What did Jesus say about the widow's few pennies? He said that that's the kind of sacrifice. Why? Because he could see the heart. Her love was so overflowing, so spilling over, that she said, you know what? I don't even care about man's opinion of me. When in our culture, that's tops. I care about you, God. This is all I have to bring. I'm going to come and bring it. Couldn't really care less about people's opinions about that. How about the little guy who climbs the tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus when he comes by, right? And then Jesus comes and he spills love all over him. Hey, you in the tree, I'm coming to your house today. You know what that prompts in little Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus in Luke 19, it says this. Zacchaeus said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. This is Gallagher concert level splashing, right? I mean, this this is spilling over and just spilling on people. Man, I, I get it. Jesus spilled on him and his love began to overflow. Perhaps my favorite, though, are four unnamed people who lower their friend down the hole in the roof because they're trying to get to Jesus. Remember that? They must have had bumper stickers that said, no room, no problem. I mean, these were guys that just said, you know, God, help us get our friend to Jesus. And Jesus' answer must have been, you don't need help. You just go do it. What's standing in your way? And they began to figure it out. Well, let's see. There's no room going in the traditional way. I got it. What if we went in from the roof and we just put him right in front? And again, Almost everyone else there thought some rule was being broken in church that shouldn't happen. But what did Jesus do? He commended them, right? He seemed to embrace that. I've never had that happen in a church service, but I think that'd be so cool. Maybe God's answering your prayer with this. What's stopping you? What's stopping you? Don't take no for an answer. That seems, that seems like that's within my will, that you want to bring a person to Jesus. Yeah, I think I'm good with that. And you just grab hold and don't let go of that. Figure it out. 
These are just some of the examples uh, that, that have some things in common, and that is this. Love is only really expressed, or love is only real um, when it's expressed and, and acted upon. Uh, in 2012, uh, we, we did this series um, through the book of James. And if you know the book of James, you know that the book of James is keenly aware and concerned with sort of how faith and action intersect, Right? And if you take either one of these gears, faith or works, and you just have it by itself, all it is is a spinning gear. It doesn't move anything at all. And so the book of James is concerned with, 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 with this. It, either one of these alone is dead. So we, we went with this theme, James, do or dead. And it was this sort of Western theme. We had a lot, a lot of fun with it. When we got to James chapter 2, we brought up this thought, that you can dress as a cowboy, but if you don't do the actual stuff, it's fake. Right? You can dress up as a cowboy all you want. You could talk about love all you want. But if you don't actually ever do anything, it's totally fake. We have a phrase in our, in our culture. We say talk is cheap. Show me the money. No, no that's, that's a different one. Um, here's the bottom line. You can't actually tell who the real cowboy is just by looking at this picture. You have to see them in action. Once you see them in action, no matter how they look, no matter how they talk, that's when you begin to discern who the real cowboy is. So think about overflowing love. Overflowing love uses things to help other people instead of just playing with things, right? That's what overflowing love of Jesus looks like. Overflowing love of Jesus fixes broken stuff instead of just looking for the photo op. I'll show up if I get some publicity. Does this sound familiar in a presidential campaign run? Man, overflowing love actually does good in the world. Overflowing love does awesome things instead of just talking about awesome things, right? When you see it in action, you go, yes, that's what I want. And overflowing love lays it on the line with no little padded mat to catch you when you fall. There's really things at risk when you spill over your love. And take Jesus at his word. Do you know that in the scriptures we're told to walk by faith and we're told to walk in love? Walk by faith and walk in love. Just begin to think of how those two intersect. I've been seeing more and more how those things intersect. The more you try to walk in love, guess what? Your faith is going to have to increase. The more you step out and walk in faith, God's going to call you to walk in love. You almost can't do one without the other. By the way, here are some of the awesome things that were on NBC's heart and tongue and prayers back in 2012. Here's what was so cool to look at this list. Some of you remember some of the poster boards we had around the room during this series. I looked at this list and I thought, wow, five of these are growing and overflowing in ways we couldn't have imagined back in 2012. The only one that is sort of faded in priority is international student ministry. And I'm wide open. If God has put on your heart to reach out to international students, come and talk to me. Come and talk to someone. Let's get that figured out. But it was so exciting to see the sort of seedling phases that some of these ministries were in and how the love of this church has grown, overflowed, and spilled over. God says, man, you guys are still at this, and that's an awesome thing. You know, the order that Paul talks about in this passage is consistent with other places. We're to love one another, that is Christians, 
And then our love ought to spill out to everyone. He writes this a little bit differently in Galatians 6.10. Do good to everyone, especially who? Your Christian brothers and sisters, especially to the household of faith. Do good to everyone, especially those you live in close proximity with. Don't you dare be a hypocrite by loving strangers and being able to pull back and retreat whenever you want, but not loving those. Who's your closest neighbor? If you're married, look at your spouse. That's about as close as a neighbor as I can imagine. If you have parents in the room, look at your parents. If you have kids in the room, look at your, look at your, your kids. Maybe some of you have invited your neighbor and they are sitting with you in church this morning. Look at them. My little five-year-old, yesterday, two nights ago, prays. Hey, we're supposed to be kind to our neighbor, Dad. I'm like, yeah, you're right. We ought to do that. The next morning, we're getting in the car to leave for a park. And he goes, Dad, I was kind to our neighbor. I go, sweet, what did you do? He goes, I went and said hi to him, and I talked to him, and he was getting the boat ready. They're going to go boating today. And I thought, man... That's what I want in my kid. You pray about it the night before. You look for opportunities to act on it. And then he shared it with his accountability partner that I guess was me. He was just excited about that, right? He just kind of answered his own prayer. God, send someone to be kind to my neighbor, right? And then you walk out and there's your neighbor. Pretty simple. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, just as we also do for you. Here's what Paul's doing. He is setting up the missions team as the model and example of love. That's a pretty bold thing to say, isn't it? I want your love to grow and spill over as much as you see that going on with us in front of you. That got me thinking. What if you prayed for those that you love and lead and you asked them to love just as much as you do? Would it spill all over and be messy? Would it be abundant? Would it be growing? Or would it be half empty? Would it be cautious? Would it be reasonable? Would it be measured? Paul says, I want your love to grow and actually overflow just like you see us loving. As we've modeled it for you, you do the same thing. Lastly, he hopes um, to, to establish them. He kind of loops back to two things that he's already talked about. Establishing them and them being watchful for Jesus. Themes that he's been over before. Verse 13, so that he, again, he's appealing for God to be doing this work, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Paul knows that God is doing his work of forming Christ in us, and he expects us, new Christians, old Christians, to be doing our work. What is our work? Our work is to be cooperating with God as he forms Christ in us. It's a big fancy theological word called sanctification, another theological theme that comes out of this passage. Cooperating, living the life. God will not come down here and live your life, pay your bills, make your decisions. He's left you in charge for that. It's like he's set up this world and he's given us authority to say here you're going to be co-rulers with me you're going to set this thing up go and set up systems go and make decisions go and let love and mercy be in your right and left hand and you go do this thing that's what god's called us to do first john 2 6 says whoever claims to live in him must walk as jesus did to me that sounds an awful lot like god's 
Not just concerned with us finding Jesus, but following Jesus, right? We're not done when we found Jesus. I found Jesus. Great. Didn't even know he was lost, but I'm thrilled for that. Are you following him? That's what he wants. Take a step with him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Get moving. How did Jesus live? Well, he taught us to do some things. He had no need for repentance, but we know that we're to repent when we sin. That means to turn from it. We know that we're to put sin to death. We know that we're to be completely dependent on the Spirit. We know that we're to be delighting in God. If you want to jot down one little passage that kind of spells out, hey, what should I add to my faith? I've got faith. Now, what else should I do? Write down 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. There's a list that would keep you there busy for a long time. It's just this process of sanctification. Here are some very specific things you can begin to take steps on. I love that he says, before our God and Father. He's praying that they would be holy and blameless in heart before God. (coughs) God's eye and judgment are all that concern the Christian when it comes to holiness. God, it's for you that I'm doing this. It's for you that I want to be blameless. Here's a huge snare for many of us, for just many people through history. Some people become smug. Or absolutely depressed. You know why? Because our estimation becomes tops. How I feel. How holy I feel. And if I feel I'm holy and a lot more holy than the rest of you, what do I become? S-M-U-G. Right? Or I look at you and go, man, you're some truly awesome people. I feel like dirt. And then I become depressed. There's another thing that happens, and that is that you become hypocritical. You become hypocritical when other people's estimation of my holiness and blamelessness become tops. When I am most concerned about what other people think, and I'm the widow bringing the tiny amount, I stop bringing my offering to God until I can get up a nice big amount, right? That's hypocritical. It's hypocritical if you are living a holy life, because here's what happened. The inside, we just sang from the inside out, the insight shrivels up and dies because we don't feed that, we don't nurture that, we don't water that, we don't tend to our hearts. What do we do? We manage our image. I'll tell you who's most threatened by this, me. You know why? I get paid to be a Christian. Not really. But it's a weird thing to stand up and have this sense that, well, you're a pastor. Whenever you heap, well, you're a pastor on me, you know what I want to do? Sometimes I do it. I throw back. Stop. Time out. I'm a beggar at the foot of the cross just like you. We are on same and equal ground. So there's a real tendency for Ben, for myself, for Rob, for people who get up in front of others to begin to manage the image and not tend to the heart. Man, that's deadly. Then he turns to this, when Jesus comes. Here we are at the end of another chapter. I told you this at the start. You've probably forgotten. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, every chapter ends with the return of Jesus Christ. Do you you think there's a pattern there, right? Watch for Jesus' return. He keeps coming back to this. Man, you live now based on that later reality. This is the whole theme of the book. Be watchful, be awake. Jesus is coming back. Here's the question. Is that good news for you or terrifying news for you this week? How should one get ready for Jesus' return? Are there preparations that should be made? 
Uh, some of our families have gone through nine weeks of home study, I mean, of, of training with the county, so they're now approved to be foster parents in Santa Clara County. We're going to be getting them up in the weeks ahead and praying over them and celebrating that. It's an awesome thing. You know what's happening now? Now comes some final steps where, where they're going to be having county workers come over and see how they store their knives to make sure that it's safe. Right? And how many electrical outlets are, are there and where they're placed and where do you store your, you know, your medicines and all kinds of things. You don't think there's preparation in your house when you know a county worker is coming over to inspect your house? You make preparations. Grandma's coming over. Do you make preparations? Yes. Hey, the police are on their way over. Do you make preparations? Absolutely. When people come, if you really believe they're coming, you make preparations, right? I mean, it's a, it's a really simple thing. It weighs on your mind and you prepare. So how are we to prepare for Jesus' return? Here's a sneak peek of chapter 4, okay? 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. Jesus is coming back. How do we prepare? You know, Jesus taught us to live expectantly in readiness. Open Matthew 24 at some point and just scan through all these different passages, okay? Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day the Lord is coming. Two verses later, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Six verses later, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And a few verses later, Watch therefore, for you, neither, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus is teaching us, I am coming in reality. Be prepared. You don't know when it is. So don't be fooled by people who tell you they know. They're lying. What comes to your mind at Jesus' coming? Is it not yet or hurry up? Is it fear or is it joy? Do you have a sense of apathy or do you have a sense of readiness this morning? Do you pray for it? This is a convicting question I ask myself. Does it show up somehow in my calendar, in my finances, in the way that I use my, my time and my energy? How does the Lord's return reveal itself? Paul evidently feels that this news would establish and encourage believers like nothing else. Hey, if you're going through a storm, Jesus is coming back. Hang in there. Man, you're tempted by this worldly, this worldly city that you live in. By the way, Thessalonica is just like doing a church plant in our day and age. Probably worse. And don't, don't give in. Don't buy in. That leads to death. Jesus is coming soon. Let that affect your life. You're tired of loving other people and spilling over. You're tired of witnessing. Hey, Jesus is coming soon. Keep at it. There are those in Scripture who hate his appearing. They are not looking forward to his appearing. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12. And this guy, basically the master goes away. And the guy didn't even outwardly say anything. It says this, The man said in his heart, My master is delayed in coming. 
And because he believed in his heart that his master was delayed in coming, he began to act wickedly. He began to beat servants and run the kingdom in a way that, that his master wouldn't have been pleased about. You know what was left for that master upon the, the, uh, the, the guy's return? It was judgment and punishment. That's the story Jesus tells for those who hate his appearing. How about for all of us who love his appearing, who long for and pray for his appearing? 1 John 2.28 says this, Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. Isn't that how you want to meet the Lord Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5.9 says this, We make it our aim to please him. You want to know how to get ready? You make it your aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All right, I want to close with some practical thoughts on how we can be more awesome. You know, you can't plead for more awesomeness unless there's already a foundation of being awesome. <laughs> so when I thought about it, I thought, man, if I were to write to this church, if I were away from you, by the way, I was at a men's retreat last week, and Ethan and I got to go up and speak to a really great group of guys up near Reading, and, um, and it was pretty powerful because we were there on a Sunday morning, not quite the same time, near second service time, celebrating communion, and I thought, man, my friends, my family are back at church, and they're celebrating communion and praying right along with us. Our hearts were united in spirit. But if I were to write to you, I would think about this church and go, man, you guys are awesome. Be more awesome. That's the sense I have Paul's writing to these people. Man, you guys have become an example. I talk about you to other churches. You guys are awesome. Grow in that. Grow up in that. I thought about this, that growing in awesomeness isn't about more knowledge. I was at a kindergarten open house this week because I have a kindergartner, so it seemed appropriate. There was this wall talking about friendship, and I thought about how kindergartners in our little neighborhood get this. Here's Lamani. Friends are nice because they help people. Here's what, um, what Ellie advises or says. I have great friends because I am a great friend. Here's Ryan. Ryan is thoroughly uh, logical and complete with his answer. He says, a friend is someone who is nice. When someone falls, they say, are you okay or not okay? And then the picture says, are you okay? And the guy on the ground says, I'm okay. He's, he's like a future airline pilot. I mean, that's the guy you want flying an airplane. He's going to get all the way through the list of every checklist. And then my all-time favor on the wall came from this cute girl named Kaya. Kaya wrote this. A friend is someone who is playing with you. We are playing on the swing. You know, knowledge isn't the problem in how to be more awesome, right? We totally get this. We know how to just be a friend. We have so many awesome people here. We just really do. They're keeping it simple, and they're making an impact. They're reading the scriptures, and they're just following it. They're not just studying it and getting into arguments about things. I spend very little time arguing with you people. I love that. I spend more time with you wrestling with, I'm in over my head. I go, yes, isn't it great? Let's pray. Right? That's how it ought to be. I don't even know of your awesomeness because I'm not with you all the time. But I get little snips and pieces here and there. And I'm so excited to be a part of this church. How can we be more awesome? What if we just prayed this for ourselves and other people? That we'd have a growing faith. That we'd have love that was overflowing. And that we lived lives that were blameless. 
as we look forward to our homecoming with Christ. I mean, these things that Paul is praying for his church, we should be praying for one another. You know, being more awesome is harder than being safe, isn't it? It's also a lot more messy. But if our love is growing and overflowing because God is at work in us, look out. Here's two handles that you can kind of jot down. Number one is look intently at the most awesome life ever lived. Just read Jesus. Just just look at his life. 33 years, his impact is undeniable in world history. He lived the most awesome life ever. So just look at it. And then here's step two. Ready? Mimic what you see. How simple is that? You want to be more awesome? Look at the most awesome life ever lived. Mimic what you see. Let me give you some of his best hits. Love your enemies. Go the second mile. Return good for evil. Forgive 70 times 7. It's better to give than to receive. Give your life away. This is the most awesome life that ever lived that inspires us all around the world to be better people. Mimic it. Like all of you, I want to be found much in love and hard at work when Jesus comes back. I want to remain in Him, as John 15 says, and I want to bear much fruit, as John 15 says. It's that simple. We are going to sing a song that is almost like a theme song for this series. It's called, uh, Even So Come. It says, call back the sinner. Wake up the saint. Jesus is coming soon. And then this refrain that we will join our hearts together and sing collectively is this. We'll be a church ready for you. Would you pray with me? God, would you birth in us a love and a longing for your return? God, you have poured so much love into us already. Help us to confidently spill that out to other people, knowing and being certain that you will replenish all that we need. You will not hold back from us. You will keep us filled up. We trust you in this. In Jesus' name, amen.